Well, hello. Thank you very much for coming. Um, I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence, and I'd like to welcome those of you who've never been to an EI event before and those of you who have. I'd like to thank Climate Change Capital for sponsoring and hosting this, our second event with them, and also to Prospect Magazine. Very briefly, I'm going to hand over to James Cameron in a moment. Um, a couple of house rules. This event is uh, not just on the record, it's uh, being recorded and will be podcast for posterity. So when the time comes to make your comments or questions, you'll have to say who you are and tell your, your granny that you're on the, on the podcast. Um, very briefly, the point of these events is quite simple. It's to discuss key issues of the day with the figures who have most impact on that, which is variously on the panel and in the invited audience, uh, policymakers, opinion formers in the media, and people in business who are often shaping and or reflecting those policies. Um, editorial intelligence makes it its business to read and summarize every line of comment published in the UK. We believe that the comment media is increasingly the key influencer in the media. And we have a range of services, which you are more than welcome to uh, sample at a later date. But for now, I'd like to hand over to James Cameron, QC, who's the vice chairman of Climate Change Capital. He's probably one of the most qualified people to practice in this area, uh, literally on the planet. I won't read you his entire CV because we need to get on with proceedings. But suffice to say that his... Uh, experience ranges from directly negotiating um, the Kyoto Protocol and being the chairman of the Carbon Disclosure Project as well as being uh, chairman of the advisory board here at Climate Change Capital. So to run you through the proceedings is James Cameron. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Julia, and um, thank you for all the, all the organizing and drawing together of parts that has gone on uh, in, in this event. Uh, Welcome to Climate Change Capital. On the way in, you may have noticed uh, a work of art on the wall. It's a, a piece that we commissioned from an American artist who's been resident here for many years called Alex Echo. And we worked with Alex to try and produce something which enabled him to interpret in, in the form you see there what we are and what we do. And in the, dis in the discussions we had with him, he would have a look at uh, speeches that I'd given, statements that we'd made in the media, ways in which the staff viewed the business that they were in. And he abstracted, literally abstracted, the words and matched them to his own vision of, of, of what we are. And I encourage you, maybe on the way out now, to stare into that panel and pick up some of the messages that are in it. But there's one right in the centre, which we crafted together, and it's a, it's a panel that says, wealth worth having. And what we're trying to do in this enterprise here is construct uh, an enterprise that's capable of creating wealth worth having. And that's drawn from experience of many years. If you, if you go through our, our staff, we're now, now 120 people. 
grown very rapidly. As a business story, it's interesting in itself. It's a business that's grown at 225% compound over four years. If you go through the business, you find people who, who really do understand the climate change issue. You've got some skills to bring to bear to solve the problem as, as put by the science. And we're really excited about the prospects of building a career where they don't make a trade-off between what makes sense from an environmental point of view and what makes financial sense. But the only way it's possible for them to do that is if we have rational policy frameworks that incentivize the alignment between public and private interest so that it is possible to create wealth worth having. If you have policy frameworks that make no connection between wealth creation and protection of the environment, they actually actively encourage natural resources to be depleted, actively encourage natural systems to be harmed, pay no price for carbon, then it's clearly impossible to have that alignment. But if you have policies that put a value on carbon, for example, it is possible to invest to achieve a financial return and deliver a public good, provided you get the market mechanisms right. And one of the things we're going to discuss on the panel is which market mechanisms, in what form, how business might respond to the climate change challenge productively. And we've got tremendous speakers here to do that. Before I hand on to them, there are just a couple of other observations I'd like to make. We know from this last week of discussion in the US, where every day seemingly there was something going on relating to climate change, that things are turning there. We might want to expand on that in our discussions. What, 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 what is really going on in the States? What's the relationship between the US and China and Europe on this huge systemic risk? Could possibly the US come late to the party but with all the resources and commitment that they have in their dynamic markets to provide maybe many of the solutions, many of the technological solutions. What is it in the markets we've currently got that give us real hope that we can build a shared, a common interest with China in resolving the climate change issue and not the antagonistic one that is occasionally portrayed in, in the media? What is it about the investments that are already happening at a relatively modest level that give us hope that we could create something much, much more substantial. So very, very large amounts of capital can flow into the solutions to climate change. Because there, the connection with energy security, for example, or building infrastructure that's resilient enough to cope with rising fossil fuel prices as well as increased pressure on, on water resources again, exacerbated by climate change, what, what needs to take place there to produce investment at scale? And what can we learn from what we're already doing that seems to be pointing in a positive direction? And finally, um, whilst in this business, we feel as if we've made a very obvious, in our name, commitment to the climate change issue, what is it that's reasonable to be expected from the, the capital market as a whole? What can, we, what can we do with the mass of investment professionals who aren't going to be specialists here? And the Carbon Disclosure Project is one such initiative that was 
launched this week in New York with quite an interesting lineup of Bill Clinton and Rupert Murdoch, an interesting combination. Um, $41 trillion worth of money under management, demanding of 1,300 large companies, information to help them better understand risk and apportion um, a, a response to that risk in the, in the way they allocate capital. What's, what effect is that going to have over time on the capital market's ability to respond to climate change? So those are some observations to get us started. We're going to begin uh, with Tom, with Tom Burke. Um, Tom is, a, is an advisor to Rio Tinto. He's a professor at uh, Imperial and University Colleges. Um, he founded a, a brilliant consultancy called E3G. He's been involved in the world of policy and politics, and he's really very good at explaining the difference between the two for many, many years, served three secretaries of state. Um, and going way back, he was one of the founders of Friends of the Earth and one of the, the original director, I think, of Green Alliance, or certainly someone who put that all together. So Tom, um, lead us off with your observations. Thank you very much, James. It's always slightly disconcerting to have somebody introduce you by reading your obituary. But, but thank you very much all the same. Um, um, climate change is a bad problem that's getting worse and could become catastrophic. I was in Washington last week and happened to turn on C-SPAN, um, and I saw there... Um, Sandy Berger, Anthony Lake, and Brent Scowcroft all discussing the abuses that the Bush administration had made of the US's uh, National Security Council and the whole machinery of national security governance. And what really stuck in my mind and is relevant to this evening is, en passant, as um, Sandy Berger was leaning, uh, li laying out a list of the kind of problems that uh, had not been tackled by the Bush administration, he said, and the existential question of climate change. Uh, actually, that really did stick in my mind. Sandy Berger is not a person who you um, fail to pay attention to when he's saying something. And the last uh, kind of existential question that the National Security Council was addressing was the Cold War. And I think it just about calibrates the scale of the problem that we're dealing with quite well. If anything, this is a more complex and more difficult problem and one with a higher degree of uh, certainty in the outcomes if we fail to tackle it uh, uh, properly. Um, what's really becoming clear, and you, many of you will have seen the front page of The Independent this morning with yet another, oh dear, it's worse than we thought, uh, story, um, is the gap between what the scientists are telling us we have to do about this problem and what the current boundaries of the politically possible are is getting wider, it seems to be, almost by the month. Um, uh, and that gap, in a sense, is the, got to be bridged by the business community and in very large part, actually, by the movement of capital one way or another, is what's going to bridge that gap between what the science say is necessary and what the politicians think is possible. What the um, science is saying is necessary to stop a bad problem becoming very much worse than possibly catastrophic is that we keep the eventual rise in global average temperatures to somewhere between two and three degrees. Uh, doing that means creating a carbon neutral global energy system by around about the middle of the century. Uh, 
that's what it means. And that's 43 years away, and the scale of that task is pretty incredible. Uh, then it means you have to keep that energy system carbon neutral into the indefinite future. That's the scale of the challenge. And it, it's a two-phase problem. The first phase, driving out the carbon from the energy system while continuing to deliver the same level of energy services that you would otherwise be delivering because nobody's about to give up energy security in order to acquire climate security, is a problem about step change in investment in the energy system. Keeping it out is about change at the margin after you've managed to get it out. And I think it's important to recognize that distinction uh, because it will affect the capital flows in rather different uh, ways. What politicians do faced with a problem with, um, of this level of complexity and, um, uh, uh, I guess, difficulty politically is to adopt what I call a P-cubed-P approach. P-cubed-P stands for prevaricate, 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 panic. And uh, that's, I would guess, or currently we're in the first of those prevaricate stages. We haven't got to the second or third of them yet, so we're quite away from the panic stage. The panic stage is when governments tend, and politicians tend to do things that A, don't really deal with the problem, and B, are extremely expensive. So we want to avoid, uh, at all costs, getting into that mode of solving the problem. That's not going to be very easy. Uh, it's going to mean, climate change means we're seeing a whether we solve it or whether we don't solve it, we're going to see a tectonic shift in the landscape of risk and opportunity for uh, investment. And I think that's something that is not really understood yet. And that frontier is running towards us at, uh, and that's the message from the science, a lot faster than we originally thought it might. The IEA's notion of what we might need to spend in order to maintain the level of energy services that we uh, uh, need uh, going out to 2030 is about $21 trillion. That's pretty big capital flow by anybody's standards. One of the implications of getting to a carbon neutral world, by the way, is that you have to take all of the gas out of domestic and most commercial heating and cooling. That's what you're going to have to do. If you, you can't have millions and millions of people all with their uh, domestic gas burners, sorry, Margaret, uh, you can't have that as a solution. So we are going to become a very much more electricity-dependent society. Lots of opportunities for some people, lots of risks for other people. But the current level of projected investment in the electricity system is about out to meet that demand going forward. The one that's forecast is about $10 trillion, uh, to which... Uh, you can add whatever you think the increment for driving the gas and other things out is going to be. So it's going to be upwards of $10 trillion. And to make that carbon neutral is going to add, you, you, anybody can pluck a number, but it's going to add somewhere between, uh, when it's a mature transition, somewhere around, I would think, between about 25 and 35% to that $10 trillion plus investment. So you are talking about very massive capital flows having to be diverted from the direction they would otherwise take to a different direction, because left to themselves, they are not going to arrive at a carbon neutral outcome. The tools that we governments have to do that are rather limited. The, um, there are five of them that I can think of, one very slow and long term and one not very effective. The not very effective one is um, 
I call sermons, but I guess the Bush administration would call voluntary measures. Um, voluntary measures have about the same effect as sermons. Uh, the second one is spatial planning, which is extremely important because one of the constraints, one of a carbon-constrained energy system is not going to need dispersed uh, logistic systems and dispersed uh, uh, dwelling patterns. So it's really enormous pressure on getting uh, uh, nucleated settlements together with much more localization, but it's going to be a slow burn. The three other tools, there uh, really only are three other tools, a carbon price, which you can achieve either through some kind of trading system, which is a regulation in disguise, or by a carbon tax, uh, technical standards, um, uh, or investment incentives, or and investment incentives, I should say. Right now, not just because of Stern, but certainly reinforced by Stern, the only thing governments are seriously thinking about, really seriously thinking about, is how to do it by a carbon price. All I'd say is that anybody who thinks you're going to make major shifts in uh, high-cap, long-life investment patterns by a marginal price of carbon uh, is deluding themselves. That isn't how uh, capital investments of that kind get shifted. So I think we're going to see and need to see a much greater use of technical standards and investment incentives. Of course, if I was being honest and hadn't learned a lot from uh, uh, recent lessons in public discourse, I'd call those regulations and subsidies. But, you know, <laughs> what's to say? There we go. That's what I think. I think if government doesn't if government doesn't actually find the right pattern, the capital shifts won't take place, uh, and we'll be discovering the highest cost option, which is moving from bad to worse, to very much worse, to catastrophic, sometime over the next 30 years or so, which is inside the boundary of investment decisions being made today. Thank you very much, Tom. Um, Ed Crooks will be next up. Uh, Ed's the energy editor of the Financial Times and uh, he joined as economics editor, and then he's, he's been a UK news editor as well. Uh, and he's been an economics correspondent at the BBC, doing all sorts of things uh, that are sort of parallel to this, but not bang on point. So, Ed, you give us your thoughts. Yeah, thanks very much. I wanted to sign myself up as a member of Tom's deluded, at least in part, in terms of people who think that putting a price on carbon can make a difference, and in particular, want to come out as a member of the particularly um, extreme subgroup of that, which is people who believe in cap-and-trade and emissions trading systems as a very important part of tackling climate change. Not, I mean, I would agree with Tom, not the whole solution, but certainly a very important part of it. And, I mean, I think it's interesting, obviously there's been a lot of debate about uh, cap-and-trade just recently, and it seems to be coming into fashion in the US rather at the same time that it's going out of fashion in Europe. And increasingly, I think, as it were, the experience of seeing a cap-and-trade system as it is in the real world rather than an idealised version that one might like has made quite a lot of people cynical. And indeed, I regret to say, even in my own newspaper, even in, your even own in my own newspaper, much to my dismay, I must yes. tell you, and against, against my urgings, we have turned against it. And I would be, um, yes, uh, these things, it's a bit like backing the euro. I'm afraid the FT is, it's hard to change the FT's mind about something. But, uh, got and, yeah, indeed, exactly, <laughs> yeah, no, quite. Um, so, um, I'm afraid I've been on the losing side of that argument, but 
I've not given up yet, and perhaps the, we'll, we will have a chance to turn it around. I mean, what I was hoping to do really was, was just um, explain why I feel the way I do and, and explain, I think, that some of the things that people see as weaknesses of cap-and-trade systems are actually strengths, and that one of the solutions that people propose to those perceived weaknesses would actually destroy the system and would actually make things very much worse. The first criticism that people often have, the first kind of class of criticism, is that the price is unstable. When you look at what's happened in phase one of the European Emissions Trading Scheme, we were up at about $30 a tonne of carbon dioxide, uh, and now we're down at about 50 cents. So we've had extraordinary volatility. I can't think, um, you know, not even subprime mortgages, I don't think, have seen such dramatic shifts in the prices. So that makes it, it's a very, very unstable market. And people say, therefore, it means it's unreliable. People can't make decisions based on this. Why would anyone want to invest in it? Um, which criticism has some validity, but I think it's very important to bear in mind that in general rule in life, you can either fix a price or a quantity, but not both at the same time. And the important thing, the thing we must never lose sight of, is that what we're trying to fix is the quantity of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The, the environment doesn't care about the price of carbon dioxide, it cares about the quantity. Uh, and so I'm afraid if the price is volatile, then so be it the price is volatile. And I think we are just going to have to accept that. If we get the quantity right, then everything else will follow. And actually, I think a lot of the problems in the phase one of the emissions trading scheme were that we didn't actually get the quantity right. And had there been essentially uh, more courageous decisions taken about the quantities, then we would have seen, seen more stability in the price. And I think that's a very important lesson for designing phase three of the scheme, which is actively underway in the European Commission at the moment. They'll be coming up with proposals before the end of the year. When they do that, I would certainly hope they do get that, uh, th those decisions on quantities right. But if they do, as I say, I think we just have to stop worrying about the price so much and accept that is a derived variable which will fall out of the quantity. It's the quantity that matters. Um, the second criticism you often hear is that essentially the whole thing is just a great big slush fund that we are subsidizing countries in particular, um, lower income countries that are high emitters for various reasons, relative inefficiencies in their industries and so on, whether within the European Union or on a global scale through the clean development mechanism. Um, and essentially we are, we taxpayers, energy bill payers in the rich countries of the world are paying the poor countries to do not very much and to do things they, they should be doing anyway. Again, maybe a bit of truth in this, and certainly I would say we can't rely on uh, cap and trade alone to solve those problems. There will be a role for regulation. There will, in some markets, be a role for taxation as well. But I think we have to recognise those resource flows from rich countries to poor countries are going to have to be part of the solution. Whatever view you take of environmental justice and the claims about how you know, we rich countries of Europe and the, and the US have been destroying the world for decades and are now asking the poor to bear the burden of that, whatever view you may take of those kind of arguments, the, they are a political reality. And there will be a deep sense of injustice. It will be impossible, I think, to get the buy-in of China and other very important 
uh, emerging market emitters unless there is some flow of resources from us to them. That's inevitable. And moreover, it's again a simple fact that these countries are higher emitters. They are less efficient because their industries uh, are less sophisticated. There's more manufacturing. The manufacturing they do is less efficient and so on. There is a greater opportunity in terms of the bang for your buck, the emissions avoided for every dollar that you spend in those countries. Therefore, we are just going to have to accept we will be paying them some money to do that. And I, again, I think it's a question of thinking about whether we are serious about tackling that, whether we're serious about tackling climate change or not. And if we are, we have to accept that'll be a consequence. So as I say, I think both of these two fundamental objection, objections are often greatly overstated. And uh, so my final thought is that, that the solution proposed to those is also potentially very damaging. You, you increasingly often now hear people talk about the idea of trying to manage the market. People say, yes, yes, by all means, let's have uh, an emissions trading scheme, let's have a cap and trade system, but let's have a market, uh, let, let's manage the market, let's have a central bank, in effect, for carbon dioxide permits or some similar thing, so we'd set a floor under the price, so we'll prevent it going too low, so that uh, people will know, investors will know when they make, the when they make decisions um, that the price won't go too low and we'll also have a ceiling so people again can be reassured the price won't go too high and the cost of permits um, won't run out of control. Which arguments I think superficially sound very plausible. I have three words in answer, exchange rate mechanism. I think the idea of trying to establish some kind of a peg for the, um, for, for the price of carbon dioxide uh, would be crazy, open to massive abuse by the markets, creating potentially much more instability, much more scope for abuse than uh, a system without that kind of mechanism in it. So I think the important thing, again, is we should grit our teeth, be prepared for the problems, not try and manage them out of existence and not destroy the market by doing so. So... In answer to the question, can the capital markets cure climate change? I think, yes, they can, but only if the market is allowed to work and work properly. Thank you very much, Ed. There are several things there I know we will return to. Um, and even one or two colleagues in the audience who I know have got some views. Um, and we have a story to tell ourselves from what we're actually doing in, as an investor in the marketplace today. Uh, David is next. David Goodhart, uh, founder and editor of Prospect. Very fine publication. Um, delight to read. And... David's uh, had a career in the journal world of journalism, the Yorkshire Evening Press, Financial Times, um, been a Labour correspondent, city reporter, Lex columnist. Uh, David, do give us your views, please. I'd be delighted to. Um, I, I come at this as, as more of a, a layman, a generalist. Um, we, we write a fair amount about these issues in prospect, indeed, in the issue you've got on your seats. Uh, we have an interview with uh, Jacqueline, Jacqueline McLeod, the head of the European Environment Agency, which uh, is worth dipping into. She gives a, a, a spirited defence of uh, the European uh, cap-and-trade system. Um, I, 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 was, I, I sort of want to be slightly more optimistic than, um, than most people usually are on this subject. I mean, I think... Um, I mean, I think in 2006, I think last year, the debate really ended about uh, about global warming and whether it was man-made or not. Um, not that that is necessarily terribly relevant. Um, 
I think it, uh, even beyond Lomborg himself accepts that um, that we do have a very serious global warming problem, and it is man-made. We had the Stern report, um, which, which was pretty universally welcomed. We've had even the, the sceptical countries, uh, the Australias, and to a lesser extent, uh, America, um, somewhat changing their minds about their previous positions. Um, and even if you look at Britain, I mean, between 1990 and 2010, economic, the economy will have grown by 50%, and our carbon emissions will have fallen by 24%. Okay, that may not be enough, but I mean, it's, it's, it's not a bad start. Um, so I think we should perhaps, perhaps be a, a bit less gloomy. Um, but if the debate is basically over about the big picture, I think the debate has barely begun about the appropriate economic mechanisms for dealing with the issue. Um, and I can, I mean, I, there's, there's a lot of excitement, understandably, rightly, about, uh, about, about carbon trading and the cap and trade system. Um, economists like it because it's sort of elegant and it apparently achieves its goals at the lowest possible cost. Politicians like it because it suggests they can partly deal with the issue by avoiding unpopular tax increases. But I do think we have to acknowledge that the truth is uh, large-scale cap-and-trade has not yet been a success. The European system is obviously in its infancy, and as I said, Jacqueline McGlade, in the current issue of Prospect, um, gives, it a, gives it a big pat on the back and um, suggest, as many people do, that it's just teething troubles and, and, and everything will be sorted out. But we don't yet have any experience anywhere in the world of a very large-scale cap-and-trade system working. Uh, sulfur dioxide in the United States um, uh, is perhaps the exception. The, the experts may come up with others. Um, the, the other problem with it at the moment, and, and uh, this may not be a temporary um, sort of teething trouble, um, is the, the implicit price of a tonne of carbon in the European trading scheme is currently £14, I think. Um, okay, it may go up somewhat. Um, but the implicit price of a tonne of carbon, uh, the, the, the price of a tonne of carbon implicit in the petrol tax, the fuel tax, is £200. Um, now, as both of those examples suggest, um, however big the price, it doesn't necessarily change behaviour. I mean, people are not driving any less. Um, um, so there is a problem here. Um, you know, even if you do create a, a system with a very high implicit or actual cost of carbon emission per tonne, um, you are not guaranteeing a reduction in carbon emissions. Um, um, and you're also potentially creating all sorts of, uh, particularly with cap and trade, you're creating all sorts of other uncertainties, particularly for people in the power generation in, in industry that uh, other people have, have touched on. Uh, these are not insurmountable problems, but um, if you really have no idea in a cap and trade system what the price of carbon is going to be in 2017, then you know, how do you decide what kind of plant to build today? Uh, it's, a, it's a very big problem. Um, but as I said, I mean, if you neither direct tax nor cap and trade uh, go to the heart of how you reduce carbon emissions. The only thing that really does that on a large scale um, is 
increasing the use of low or non-carbon energy sources. Um, and that requires, uh, it seems to me, that, that um, good old-fashioned subsidy. Um, and of course that runs against the grain of, uh, of, of modern economic sense, unless of course you, you channel your, your income from carbon tax um, in that direction. I mean that seems to me to be the, the best broad direction. I mean I think there is a, there is a role for, for cap and trade perhaps with big, big power uh, users, um, but I think we're, we're, we're going to crack this problem through essentially a carbon tax and straight product regulation um, and, a, and a fair amount of good old-fashioned subsidy. Okay. That should get us going in a short while. Um, let's, let's go now to Anthony Hilton, Tony Hilton, the financial editor of the Evening Standard. Anyone who lives in London and reads the paper knows his section. Um, much admired and uh, rewarded uh, journalist from uh, his profession, World Press Awards, uh, honoured him recently. And uh, Tony, your views, please. Oh, thank you very much. I wish everybody in London did buy the Evening Standard. I think we're, um, <laughs> those days are rather long gone. However, um, question, uh, how can the capital markets cure climate change? They can't. Uh, on their own, they can't cure climate change. But I think that they can help, and help significantly, if the environment's right. But there's no easy answer that if we put a system in, then the rest of us can carry on having our coal fires and uh, driving our four-by-fours and leave it to the markets to, uh, to sort it out, because that wouldn't happen. Um, but I, I think that I, I, I'm reminded of... Uh, I think it was a comment attributed to uh, President Clinton when he said that in his next life he wanted to come back as the bond markets because they had the capacity to scare everybody. <laughs> and uh, I think that what one is looking at in the capital markets effectively uh, is a mechanism that is going to mobilize literally a vast mobile resource. The, there is nothing in this world uh, as powerful as the weight of money that flows through the capital markets. Uh, there is nothing that can, uh, can match it. And therefore, if we can channel even a part of that resource to reinforce moves to cut carbon emissions by whatever means, then that is surely uh, a huge force, uh, I say for good, certainly in the direction that everybody in this room wants to go. I, um, so, so that's the first point. I think we, um, there are precedents. David on the end mentioned sulfur, uh, sulfur dioxide. But I think sulfur dioxide is quite interesting because sulfur trading in Chicago over 10 years cut US sulfur dioxide emissions so much that acid rain ceased to be a problem. Uh, now, I agree that carbon and sulfur are uh, problems of a different scale of magnitude, but it did work. And nor should we say it is a hopeless idea to think that we can get global agreement on things, because, again, it's the smallest thing, but look what happened with uh, CFCs and refrigerators, that uh, against all the odds, a deal was done and CFCs were largely removed from uh, refrigerators. Uh, across borders, and uh, in a relatively short time. So I think there is 
a bit of scope for optimism. And indeed, David Llewellyn, who is uh, an economist at Lehman's, who has done a really very impressive uh, couple of studies of, uh, of this, and from a pretty unbiased, dispassionate point of view, does say in his uh, latest work published about a month ago that he predicts uh, a global system of uh, carbon trading within five years. Global, not just UK or Europe. Um, I challenged him on this, but he really felt that that was the way it was going because America will move once Bush is out of the way. And once America moves, Chicago, uh, not Chicago, sorry, China will come in behind. They were in, and, and, uh, and that will give you the nucleus for some sort of global system. But the question is, will it work? But I think that clearly the European uh, ECX, the European uh, Carbon Exchange, which has been referred to by Ed and others, uh, was created, what, two or three years ago, and it started trading carbon. Uh, albeit at the margin, because most carbon trading is done over the counter between institutions, not in the open market. But they started trading it, and uh, the founder of it, Neil Eckert, told me um, when it was being launched that once the price got up to $40, I think, 35 to $40, there's a figure. But there is a point where once the carbon price gets there, it is worthwhile uh, for power stations, for example, to put in anti-pollution measures because it costs them more to uh, buy the carbon than to put in the, in the scrubbers. So, so th there is a, a point where it matters. But the thing that I like about carbon trading is that it gives an incentive for the virtuous to become more virtuous. So that if you have uh, an organization which basically is um, a low emitter, it can actually become absolutely carbon neutral and sell the benefit of that on the market. So that what the market does is not cure uh, carbon emissions, but it means that it is worth everybody's while to make an effort. And through the market mechanism, you, uh, you, you take all the easy choices first, effectively. The easy answers get done first. And, and so you make quite a lot of progress quite quickly. Um, I think the second point about the market mechanism and the capital markets is that when you actually think about the, the carbon problem, it is so phenomenally complex, so intertwined with the economies and uh, the environment and uh, uh, equality and so on between nations. It, it, it defies, if you like, the wit of man to cut away through it. Um, and without wishing to sound um, vaguely conservative, which I most certainly am not, um, I do think that uh, markets have a way of allocating capital and finding their way through problems which actually defy, as it were, objective solution um, by politicians or other people. So I, I think that if we can mobilize the power of the markets, it will somehow find its way through the system and start uh, tackling the problem. The difficulty with carbon trading is the one that Ed and others have highlighted, which is that it won't work in isolation. It needs a political framework to start with to establish carbon scarcity. Uh, carbon has to be made scarce uh, so that it has a price and so that the market mechanism can work. And as long as the externalities of carbon trading are, uh, are not priced, in other words, uh, before there are effective caps on polluters, then there's no way that the system will work. But if uh, in the first round of the EU um, 
thing. Uh, if they had, in fact, imposed on the utilities uh, actual genuine caps that squeezed, then the carbon trading system would have worked. It failed to work because there was no squeeze, so there was no, there, there, there was no as it were, shortage of carbon, so there was no price. Um, so that, that, that's about it, really. I, I like the idea of a price of carbon because it gives a measure, it gives a yardstick, and it gives an incentive for the system to work. And I think that all those things are uh, a step, uh, but quite a major step uh, down, down the road at which we have to go. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm very aware there are people in the audience who've got a lot of experience to, to offer to answer some of these questions, indeed some particular experience of the key issues that have been raised by our speakers. Before we get into that, whilst you think of what you want to say and, and uh, get ready to get a microphone and say, say who you are, I, I'm just going to add a couple of things in from our experience in this enterprise, because obviously this is what we do every day. The first is that um, it's not right to think that the carbon market as a market failed in Europe in the first year. In fact, it worked in the first year. What failed was the political failure to set the right targets. And that was based upon, in some instances, a simple lack of data, and in some instances, on being too easily persuaded by powerful interests in, in, the, in the regulated sectors. But I would argue that the European Commission and the member states that agree with it did the right thing by getting started and actually should be honoured for doing that rather than criticised for not having the data. I would also argue that it's our experience that they got the data more quickly by beginning than if they'd set out to go looking for it. The second thing is that the market price today for 2008 European allowances is about 21 euros. Okay? Now I'm, I'm looking at someone in the audience who can perhaps help you with the question you are grappling with, with Neil Eckert at, at the various price inflections that make a difference, because we have a view that's somewhat more nuanced, we think. And Tony White are going to come to me, perhaps you can explain how that works. But 21 euros um, is more than enough for a meaningful price to be set over at least a period of time where real reductions can take place in exactly the way you were describing, Tony, where the market goes looking for what's easy. But we would also argue from our experience, not sufficient to make the big long-term infrastructure investments that Tom's talking about. Okay? So this is a big year for the European Union to celebrate its success in getting started, but to make sure that we get much more length to the system and that the price for carbon or the value for reducing emissions, which is the main point, is in some way bolstered by a long-term investment strategy. And this is something that we very much favor here. The other thing is that our experience today is that we've managed to raise capital here in London and deploy it all around the world to reduce emissions in very significant amounts, by which I mean in tens of millions of tons, you know, the equivalent to the annual emissions of, a, of Bjorn Lomborg's country, for example. Right? <laughs> we've done that by using a market mechanism driven by public policy, which has been set at the global level and enhanced and enforced at the regional level. And, and that's a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing that we've actually started down that route. And the emissions that we cause to be reduced by our investment, from an environmental point of view, they're done. 
you know, if we install a catalyst in an, in an industrial plant to reduce emissions, the very thing that at least one of your correspondents seems to take objection to, that, that's done. The environment's had the benefit. Whether we make money from it is entirely to do with whether we've made a, a good deal one end and whether we can find a buyer the other side. But the environment's had the benefit from the installation of the technology that's caused the reduction. So on its face, from a purely environmental point of view, it works. And it's causing reductions to take place that would not have happened in any other way today. And speed is of the essence. So we're doing things now that could possibly have been done in the future, but we're doing them now because of this market mechanism. And the doing of them means that we have people in across the, that wall there who, who have to go out and construct a deal with Chinese or Indian or, uh, or, or Brazilian counterparties, and they have to sit down and understand the common interest, understand the Kyoto Protocol, what it means, understand the rules in their domestic jurisdiction, work out some intelligent capital structure that allows a long-term benefit to be achieved for both parties. That builds constituents of interest that have an interest now in reducing greenhouse gas emissions profitably. And that didn't exist before this happened. All of that is extremely positive, and it's, it's a way of, of beginning doing something that has to happen on a much bigger scale, but the signs are really rather good that we've, 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 made, we've made progress. So, who would like to ask a question? Who would like to make a comment before I start finding people? I know someone who knows something there. Right, go ahead. All fascinating. Thank you so much for that. Really, really interesting and stimulating. Um, I, I wanted you... Oh, sorry, my name's Clive Bates. I'm a head of environmental policy at the Environment Agency. Very much in the news at the moment. I wondered if you would reflect on the financing or potential financing of the Seven Barrage. Um, very interesting conundrum here. I mean, a uh, £15 billion project produces about as much power as two nuclear power stations. If it were to be financed with ordinary commercial project finance, its cost of carbon savings would be... 150 to 200 pounds a tonne, way off the scale compared to what we're right. used to at the moment. There's perhaps three ways of looking at this. First is that um, commercial cost of capital uh, is missing something. It's too short term uh, for a project like that, and there's something, there's something wrong with the capital markets that doesn't deal with really long-term projects. Alternatively, you might say that um, the cost of commercial capital properly reflects risk and other things like that. But is there a, is there a mismatch between public interest, which is long-term codified in treasury discounts and so, discount rates and so on, and the commercial cost of capital. Secondly, you might say the problem is that the carbon market is too immature. Uh, its price signals out over the uh, lifetime of something like the Seven Barrage are, are, are too weak and too unreliable and too incredible to, to build anything. And thirdly, you might just say, well, actually, the project's a turkey. And it fails all these tests because it's far, far too expensive uh, in the way that it uh, reduces carbon emissions. We've all got captive, captured by a load of engineers, and actually we need economists and finance, financiers to put us on the, the straight and narrow. But then you, then you have to pick up Tom's message, which actually wants a, a, you know, a, an almost apocalyptic revolution in the energy system, and say, well, actually, maybe these things you know, should be considered in some way. 
But so just do it anyway. Yeah, yeah, just do it anyway just because we're going to need everything, which is the, you know, the long and short of the justification for it. So I just wondered if you could perhaps reflect one. on those three views of, the, uh, of financing large energy re uh, carbon reducing infrastructure. More than enough there, Clive. I'm happy to take, you know, take the whole panel, but I really encourage people in the audience who know to have a comment as well. Tom, do you want to have a lead off? Yeah. Um, as you said, quite a lot there. Let me go to the, in a sense, the last point. I don't want to have to make a transformation in the energy system. I'm actually quite happy to live in a world in which the energy system goes on as it is, provided it doesn't transform the climate in doing so. That's the problem. If it's going to transform the climate, then we better had, or we won't be doing anything. And I don't think people quite grasp the, the extent to which if we allow the climate to change, it's going to have an enormous impact on what you think is worth investing in. Just as much as if we decide we want to stop the climate changing, it's going to do that. When I look at your question of the, 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 um, the seven barriers, there's a straightforward piece. There's a private good, and you should let private goods, uh, in a sense, should be pursued by the market, and markets do a very good job of doing that. Uh, and actually delivering energy services to customers you can identify as a perfectly good, sensible way to do things. There are some public goods here, one of which is climate security, another which is energy security, which actually markets are never going to deliver, they're not going to do it in theory, and they've never done it in practice. And we have to be pretty clear that climate security is not going to be delivered by markets simply pursuing quite proper relationships. Uh, and we're doing this on a global scale. So when you start saying, if we've got to invest in a public good, what is it that matters most? What matters most to the prosperity, security, and well-being of 60 million Britons is that we get a handle on what everybody else is doing, not just on what we're doing. And above all, that means getting a handle on carbon-neutral coal. That's what it means, because other people are making decisions to use coal. Uh, whether we do it or not, they're making decisions to use coal, and I can't see any way in which us doing the seven barrage does anything to help us persuade the rest of the world that actually we believe that carbon neutral coal is an essential part of making a, uh, 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 a climate, achieving climate security. So we have to modulate our sense of engineering opportunity with what it is we actually think at the end of the day will deliver prosperity and security uh, to, the, to Britain's 60 million citizens. And frankly, the Seven Barrage isn't going to do very much that, whether it stands up in sort of its own terms or not. And there's lots of debate about that. Uh, I happen to think not because I don't know why you want to do things in big lumps in a world where the risk quotient is getting higher and higher. You want to do things in smaller and smaller lumps. But that's just a view on the seven barrage. The main thing is, it's a distraction in terms of public investment from our problem, which is to get the Chinese, the Indians, the North Americans, the rest of the Europeans to think we're serious about getting at carbon neutral coal. Any other people on the panel want to, want to make a comment on asking the questions? Yeah, I'll, well, yes, could I make Yes. Um, first of all, I mean, you. You said that the markets were bad at uh, financing long-term projects. And the answer is, it ain't necessarily so. Um, but what the markets do require is um, a certainty of price, so they know what kind of return they're going to get, um, a certainty about regulation, so the rules won't change, and uh, a certainty of technology. Um, and so that it is quite feasible, for example, for the next generation of nuclear power to be uh, financed in the in the private sector, provided 
um, the planning, then the technology are standardized, and uh, you know the price is, is set. Uh, in the, I think that in the context of the seven barrier, the difficulty is that you don't have an end price for electricity. But to go back to the idea of carbon trading, if there were a price for carbon of 20 euros a ton or 40 euros a ton, you could then claim that this thing, when produced, would generate um, X or would save X million tons of carbon at 20 euros a year. And they could then sell that on the market as a defined revenue stream. The market price would go up and down, admittedly, but there would be some way of putting a price on the value of something like the seven barrier, which at the moment there isn't. I mean, we can think it's a good idea because it saves 5% of the, of the or it will generate 5% of the energy in a carbon neutral way, but that's a bit vague, but this would actually put a price on it. So I, um, I rather like the idea of a seven barrier, actually. Just, I think it just appeals to me, the idea of all that tide doing all the work and, uh, and being captured. But uh, I, I, I take uh, you know, the points made that it could be a grandiose white elephant. But I do think that it does tie in with our conversation, because if you had a price on carbon, then you could make the seven barrier, uh, assess the seven barrier in terms of whether it would make a profit or not. And uh, I think that would, act, and, and you could price it and you could finance it. Any other comments down here? Yes, I, I mean, I'm also um, somewhat in favour, as you say, just from the idea of it sounds, the thought that it sounds like a cute idea. Uh, one of the things I think, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that kind of unaided the market signals in its favour are very weak indeed. But I think there's also an important consideration, which is that we don't want to be trying to pick winners uh, any more than we have to. And I think yeah, the argument, I mean, okay, maybe you're right, maybe carbon sequestration is the way forward, maybe that is going to be the technology which is going to be transformational everywhere. And as you say, on a global scale, it is the single most important thing. But on the other hand, I think we would be unwise in policy terms to put all of our eggs in that basket. And so I think that's why nuclear is worth thinking about as well, and well, more than thinking about why nuclear is worth doing and investing in and making it possible for the private sector to invest in that, and similarly with the tidal power and the seven barrage being part of that as well. Okay. Uh, I, I don't really have much to say. I mean, I, 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 I like the idea of big, big symbolic projects do have something to be said for them in a way. I mean, when you, when you fly out of Copenhagen, is it, and you sort of see those windmills in the sea, you sort of, you know, you feel, well, you know, Denmark's kind of doing something. And um, obviously all the other things have to work as well, but I think, I think there is a, a sort of political symbolic role for, for, for big things like that, as long as it doesn't ruin the surfing off the North Cornwall coast. <laughs> General wanted to come in here, then my colleague Tony White after him. Just I, I'm Neil Stewart from uh, Policy Review. I try and get politicians to do policy. Um, I'm at David's end of the, uh, the table. I'm really a historian. I'm very struck by what Tom says, that the instruments of government are taxation, otherwise known as stealing, regulation, otherwise known as uh, coercion, and subsidy, otherwise known as redistribution. Unfortunately, historians know that governments have another option, which is shooting. Um, and some of the work that we've been doing with people uh, up in Liverpool looking at water distribution and whether some of these climate change issues will tip over into shooting before the markets can devise solutions. I mean, I am fantastically encouraged. And if the European politicians and others have the courage to price things properly, we may get 
peaceful mechanisms to redistribute. And I'm slightly encouraged that my generation, which started off worried about mutually assured destruction because of nuclear weapons, looks around the world and watches the Chinese buying bits of Blackstone to avoid mutually assured financial destruction. So maybe we've moved on. But it seems to me that that fourth strand of shooting is a real, I mean, as somebody who's got three kids under 10 and for whom a 30-year um, threshold is not a financial calculation. And watching Burma being pulled one way because the Chinese think that's where they'll get food and other issues to cope with the encroachment in the Gobi Desert and the rise of their population, and the Indians pulling the other way because they want gas. It seems to me that we are in a race against uh, the fourth element that every state always has. And on that cheerful note, how can you speed things up? I'm going to have a word or two about that. I'm sure others will have a view because it's a really profound issue. One of the reasons why, personally, I like the market mechanisms, the policy-driven market mechanisms that we, that we use here and that we advocate, although no, we don't advocate them exclusively, we understand there are lots of other measures that can be used, is because, uh, A, they fit the problem better, um, be there a way of coping with the lack of knowledge we have of all the solutions, the market's good at finding solutions and informing others about them. The information exchange is good within market mechanisms, but also it's the, it's the freest version of the kind of intervention that we need in order to solve a very, very substantial collective action problem. And I think there's a real danger in autocracy in environmental policy making. It's, it's a, almost an instinctive reaction, sometimes amongst our friends and colleagues in the environment movement, because they do know what's best. So if only they just command the answers, that would be great, right? And yet they would all they'd be forming governments that they'd be out in the street to protest against. So there are, there are, there's a real danger in autocracy in the, in, the, in the set of solutions to deal with environment problems, just as there's a real danger of conflict arising over scarcity of resources, we are perfectly capable as a species of fighting to the death over the last oil, which we don't want to burn anyway because it's going to cause damage to the atmosphere. We're perfectly capable of doing that. So if you can find ways of interceding between scarce resource, physical resource on the one hand, water and energy in particular, and the tendency towards autocracy on the other, I'm quite sure that it's going to revolve around these sorts of policy-driven markets that we've been describing. Tony, I've been dying to bring Tony in because I know he's got things to say about our discussion. This concept that this is a nice market, that the carbon market is a market and we just have to let it uh, get on. Sorry, I'm Tony White, Climate Change Capital. Uh, the fact is, it's a market where the demand function is driven by the politicians. So that's a very, very different market from any other market in coal. Oil is affected by the politicians, but the demand function is done by customers. So to think that we could just let the market go is, I think, a bit naive. So if we do move to a managed market, I'm not saying we would do it in some time, rather like the world, like uh, the British, the Bank of England manages inflation by adjusting interest rates, you could have some organization creating allowances or permission to emit carbon dioxide uh, consistent with some strategy, long-term strategy, to 
reduce emissions to a certain level. That is possible. The trouble is there's no organization around yet that would have the comp any bankers would have the confidence to do it. That's one thing. The other thing that is important that we should take is if we rely on a price mechanism for investments. Oil prices today are up around the $80 a barrel. Show me an oil field that is being developed that requires just a, a measly price of $50 a barrel to be economic. There aren't any. Maybe we do it at 30, possibly 40, but not much further. So I think the trouble with a policy-driven market is that when you want to invest in it, financiers will always look at the what's the worst case that this could go down to, what the price could go down to, before they decide to lend the money to let you go and build the thing. And that is very important for things like power stations and the rest, which we need to build now that are of low carbon intensity. Because it's the stations we're building now, there's a lot of Europe and America's coming to replace a lot of assets built after the war and a bit later. We are going to lock in very carbon intensive forms of generation unless we do something about it. The problem is that we don't have time necessarily. We've got global emissions at 430, sorry, concentrations at 430 ppm, CO2 equivalent. At 450 ppm is a big red flag goes up because there's a real probability that we go north of 2 degrees centigrade. So we just don't have time. So the idea that we can carry on in our nice social democratic ways of doing things, I don't think we have that freedom anymore. So we need to have some other ways of reducing the uncertainty so that investors can make these investments. They might be a bit wrong later. But we need to get the low carbon emissions low carbon intensity generation or forms of it into our economy. Otherwise, I'm afraid we're just fiddling while Rome burns. Thank you. Tom, do you want to come in now? Uh, yeah, I wanted not to miss Neil's point, actually, because I think it's very important. This, uh, I'd left bullets out deliberately. It's, it's the fifth one in my list of tools that governments have. Um, but I left it out in a sense because it's not relevant in this context in, in one sense that there's no way that there's a hard power solution to the problem of climate change. There may be, I don't happen to think it probably is a high, a hard power solution to access to oil, uh, but there's no hard power solution to the problem of climate change. But there are hard power consequences to a failure. And let me illustrate that with just one thought. The current level of food price inflation in China is 18%. It has three proximate causes connected to climate change. The first is a series of floods, extreme floods in China, which have affected the harvest this year, uh, which you know have got other causes, but which climate change is a part. The second is the drought in Australia, which is very significantly climate change driven, which has pushed up wheat prices. And the third is the increase in corn prices, driven by the Gadarene rush to bioethanol, largely funded by domestic political considerations in the US. Now, you want to think, very hard about how many years you think you're going to maintain political stability and social cohesion in China at 18% uh, uh, food price inflation and what you think that might mean for the prospects for 60 million Britons. Now that's proximate. Imagine what happens when you get out beyond uh, two, two and a half, three degrees. This is what's happening now. So I, that's really, really significant. And just to come on your point and come back to something you said, uh, Anthony, that... Um, 
people in Rio Tinto face, and they make long-term investments, a lot of difficulty in saying what's the price of copper going to be in the 25 years it's going to take us to get it out of the ground. But they've got good judgment about that because they've had a lot of experience at working out how to handle that investment uh, frame and how to deal with it as they go forward and manage the risks. They have no experience of managing the price of carbon. And James could tell us what the price of carbon is going to be next year, but not what it's going to be in 2025. And there's no experience in, in, in Rio Tinto in how do you make judgments about billion-dollar investments about how you'll manage that uncertainty and that volatility going forward. So what you've got is a huge chill on investment. Now, that's true of the power industry uh, as well, uh, and all, in fact, high-cap, long-life investment makers. So there's a real problem about making the transitions you need because of the limitations on the decision makers who might be willing to take the risks if only they had confidence in their judgment about them. That's a great point. Is no. this the point that it has to be a joint venture between the politicians yes. and yes. the markets? Yes. yes. And with, and without the political framework and Absolutely. political yeah. courage and certainty and, uh, and resolution, then the markets can't work. And you need kind of mutual, mutual reinforcing. You and if you wanted a way in which to convince investors that you not to be confident, you would go about it in the way this government went about it in a series of energy white papers. Because I can't think yes. of a more convincing way of dissuading investors. Uh, yeah, you no, wanted to have a comment. Well, Do you yeah. have an observation well, also well, about the well, price? Uh, a couple of things. Firstly, I wanted to come back on that. And yes, I mean, you're absolutely right about that, about the terrible muddle that energy policy has been and the way that's sowed confusion and the way that is, as you say, deterring investment at the moment. But... When you talk to people in the industry, it is very clear. As you say yourself, they are prepared to make those investments. They are learning. They've learned a lot in the last few years about what can happen to the price of carbon and what the implications of the price of carbon are for investment decisions and so on. Um, and without wanting to seem excessively rose-tinted about it, there is a real hope that if we get the right kind of phase three of the European emissions trading system, then that will give people the confidence they need to invest. And, and I just wanted to come back on, on your point, uh, Tony White. The, um, I mean, you said something about this is a market in which demand is managed by governments, which I think is, is it's exactly the wrong way around, isn't it? This is a market in which supply is managed by government. The supply of permits is handed out by governments. Demand is set by well, yes, individual you, investors' decisions. What decision. you meant was that, is that the regime creates demand. It's the setting of the parameters of the regime. If well, for the government, yeah, they would, they would be, yeah, to, to purchase these things. Well, yeah. okay, okay, all right, all right, all right. It's a semantic point, okay, but the, I mean, the argument is that... Uh, but then, no, let's, but, let's just move no, on no, no. a second, because uh, what, what also was implicit in the well, exchange between you yeah. about, uh, because you made this point about managing, managing the market, um, Tony um, is not suggesting uh, that uh, the price be managed directly by such an institution, what he's suggesting is that, the, that because the market only exists to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that's its purpose, and you're constantly feeding data in about whether your market is delivering that purpose, because you measure it in tons of carbon, if the price goes r relatively low, you know it's inexpensive to achieve your objective, which is to re reduce tons. Therefore, you can create more demand, or put another way, more scarcity of supply. You, could, you can intervene in the market in next time you have a round of allocations. And that well, means that you have increased scarcity, right? And then you can manage, in the sense of this word, the upper end of the economic dislocation. And you could do it with information to start with. I mean, that's your point, Tony. You could just 
you can have an institution that collects data, understands the meaning of supply and demand mechanics in the carbon market, and then helps the decision maker to set more aggressive targets in order to meet the scientific objectives that your regime is based upon. That's the sort yes. of intervention he's talking but you about. But ha you still haven't addressed my fundamental point, which is, I mean, essentially, you can, you can affect either price or quantity, but not both. And if, and if you have an objective for quantity, which is being driven by the science, yeah. that must be the thing that sets it the is. pace of what you do, and it, that must be the thing that when the price falls Ed, out of that. And you're right and, about that, and all the people who try to come up with safety valve things are have wrong. not, have yeah. not understood yeah. We don't favour that. But, no. <laughs> well, no, no, but that's, that's what but, you're talking about. But politically, there's enormous pressure to come up with safety valves. You, yeah. But I think you're no, absolutely no. right. You can either determine the environmental outcome or the price outcome, but you can't determine both simultaneously. Yeah. It's the equivalent of Heisenberg or Godel or all those <laughs> various things. <laughs> so, so, I mean, perhaps I'm being very naive, but isn't the implication of what you're saying, what Tom is saying anyway, that, that actually we do ultimately want the state we want politics, we want the government, whether it's European level or global level or national level, to determine what the price of a tonne of carbon should be. Uh, they, they do that either through... Well, why not precisely? I mean, otherwise you're left with the volatility problem, which still means that people don't know whether to build a nuclear plant or a gas plant or a whatever plant. I mean, what, what difference does it actually make? I mean, you, you, have a, you have a uniform price across all, you know, you, you know 80 pounds a tonne, whatever it is, whether it's reflected through fuel tax, through the, through, through the cap on cap and trade or whatever. Yes, but the cap is a volumetric cap driven by the need to reduce tons of carbon. It's not a price cap. We, we, we certainly, I'm speaking on behalf of all of us here, we, but in CCC, we don't like um, price breaks in the market. We don't like the Bingham and Bill get out cause the so-called safety valve because we're pretty confident, as, as he says, one part of our business does this every day, that it would be extremely difficult to know what that price should be at any one time without a proper market, okay? So just as governments don't possess the sum total of all the information required to, to directly regulate this problem, and markets are better at finding the solutions, so it is that governments do not possess all of the information about the dynamics of the market to set a specific price, and they shouldn't. I mean, that's... A, Basically, another form that's just that's just taxation by another name, and and governments don't know the right price. We haven't had enough experience of finding the price yet. Uh, we, we're so constantly it's surprised. And with science it. that determine yes, what but they the price they be. determine the quantification of reductions, right? And and they need to be progressive, and and they need to keep you know need to keep taking more tons out of our economy, but eventually, after some years of experience, we'll get better at measuring and managing the exposure to carbon price over a long term. And I think the European Commission is going this year James, to give should, us that long-term signal. Stop having a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. Let some of these yeah, there's a question over here. We, we actually, we need to. Hi there. Um, yeah, my name is Tom Rotherham. I work with Radley Eldar and also an associate with the International Institute for Sustainable Development. Um, first, a point maybe on, on David's uh, question. I think predictability is the issue here. Um, if you use the analogy of um, how intellectual property rights give predictability to the pharmaceutical industry. Um, you're not setting a price for what you can sell your, your products at, but uh, a policy um, tool, which is in, you know, property rights and intellectual property rights in particular, allows the predictability to, to help the planning. And I think that's really what we're talking about here. What are those little 
those little tools that you can use to help improve predictability without presuming that you know enough to set. I mean, technology change on its own will drive a need for a change in price. I mean, that's. Um, but the question that I have, though, is um, with respect to the. There's, I mean, there's sort of a, a hard market and a gray market for, for carbon at the moment. Um, one of the points that James made was um, with respect to why politicians don't act is that they're too easily persuaded by. Um, interested parties. Um, is there a danger that the institutions and policies that get put in place by the, what is now relatively more rapid growth in the gray market than the, I don't know if that's the white market, I suppose, I don't want to say black market, but um, the sort of the non-CDM um, trade, the voluntary trade. Um, is there a danger that that creates a self-interest that which runs counter to the longer-term policy objectives of the, of the CDM? And, and how is that going to be addressed? And, and that's where I, I think one of the questions related to this is my concern about over-focus on and over-hope and optimism in the financial markets is that you'll have a lot of financial players, perhaps, who have a self-interest in perpetuating that system rather than flipping over and recognizing, okay, all of the stuff that we've done is actually a mistake because we've been feeding one part of the market and there's another part of the market. Not suggesting that climate change capital is falling for that, but, you know, there are others, I think, who are. Tom, you, want to, you, you, had a, you had a reaction. Well, only, only I, I agree. The pressure to have cap-and-trade systems is driven in part, very large part, by people who've got to make a lot of money out of the trading irrespective of the outcomes of that. Now, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you get the other bit, which is much weaker and is actually part of this whole debate. Whether you have confidence in the political will and the institutional wisdom to create a sense in which that dynamic is a servant of your objective rather than the master of the objective, we'd be foolish not to think that that was a risk, especially in the light of current events in the mortgage markets, for instance. Yeah. Do you have any other comments on that? I mean, on the, on the Margaret, we could t quickly take Margaret and then we'll, we'll wrap up after Margaret, because she knows too. <laughs> uh, Margaret Mockford, uh, BG Group, and also Climate Change Capital Advisory Board. Um, I'm a great believer in carbon markets, worked them for uh, probably since the 90, uh, uh, 2000 or so. But what we're finding in, in BG Group, a gas company, as, as others will know, is actually the energy market is not a real market, of course. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, power stations work in regulated markets, they get regulated returns often. Um, where we get our gas from, our new gas, we are competing with NOCs that aren't working to market um, drivers. They're working to energy security advisors. And the risk is you might end up with a, a, a pure, beautiful carbon market that does nothing for energy uh, use and carbon emissions because the energy market is driven by a lot of other national interests. And so I think the, it was elegantly put, the joint venture between um, governments and, and um, business and the markets absolutely has to run both to energy policy and, and carbon policy. I think we might get unanimity up and down the panel on that one. It's uh, Richard Benwell, University of Cambridge. Um, one of the speakers uh, said earlier that uh, cap and trade was falling out of favour in Europe uh, and, uh, and uh, growing in favour over in the US, but uh, it seems to me that it's uh, growing in vogue by the day in this country. And in fact, uh, in the, the climate change bill that's going through at the moment, uh, the only positive policy suggestion for how to achieve our 60% reduction by 2050 is to have domestic cap-and-trade uh, systems. Uh, and I would be interested to know whether the panel think that that's the government falling foul of this temptation to micromanage um, levels of supply uh, in, the, in the sectoral level. Um, and also, I'd be interested to hear how uh, the panel think that 
the multiplicity of uh, cap and trade schemes that are appearing across the world will fit into this uh, global scheme that might appear within five years and will uh, the fact that there are many many different sorts of credits end up undermining the system we see in the US that um, RECs, you know, the renewable energy certificates are being traded as if they were carbon reduction. So, uh, uh, an opinion on the climate change bill would be nice. About which I have views, but I think we all should allow our panel to, to answer that and maybe make it their closing, closing remark at the same time. One sentence. I think if Gordon Brown had understood what he'd signed up to by, at least in theory, in the proposal of the bill, making the uh, Environment Secretary, I think second only to the Chancellor in terms of the management uh, influence on the, on the British economy, he would have called election anyway in order to get out of doing it. I don't think that the government has fully understood what it's written, the obligations it's writing for itself in the Climate Bill, and therefore we might see a very interesting passage through, the, um, uh, um, through Parliament as the opposition and the NGOs and others bid it up and the government tries desperately to bring it down. I think um, what worries me is that the government still seems to see carbon trading and the markets as a soft option, yeah, exactly. uh, that it can pass the buck over to them without taking the tough decisions and implementing the tough decisions itself. And I think this seemed to me to be a manifestation of that. Yeah. Okay. The... Um, <laughs> Uh, the domestic cap-and-trade thing, I, I think, is, is a bit of a red thing. I'm a, I'm a fan of cap-and-trade in general, as I've said, but that does seem to me to be uh, perhaps a, a step too far. On the global system, I, again, I'm afraid I have to say, would, would be an optimist. I think this may be one of those kind of reverse Gresham's Law thing. I think, I think the good system will drive out the bad, and good permits will drive out the bad. I think there, will, there is partly because there is a widespread recognition that in a lot of areas things are not being, not as they should be, the promised emissions reductions are not being delivered and so on, I would be optimistic that if we get a proper global well-enforced scheme, that would pretty quickly sweep away all the other riffraff that's out there at the moment. Okay. Uh, I'm sure cap and trade can play an important role um, in all of this, but I do think that the rather more old-fashioned basic things like tax and product regulation are going to play a more important part in the long run. Apart from anything else, we've got to remember one third of all emissions come from households. Um, well, a fifth, is it, or more than a fifth from, from transport? I mean, things which are not so easily susceptible to cap and trade as, as, as big power. You're absolutely right. Our next fund is a property fund, so we, we, we couldn't agree with you more. That there, are, there are parts of the economy that can be reached with capital that, that aren't driven by a carbon market, and it's really important that we get there. Um, little, little exchange between us on, on the carbon markets that perhaps needs some comment. The, there are several prices for carbon, as you know. There are several instruments that get traded today. They get discounted, and even, even CERs through the clean development mechanism are discounted against delivery into the European market. Over time, they will converge. There will be a tendency to converge over time. There will be a tendency to the more valuable currency to be more respected. We might, I suppose, theoretically get exchange rates in carbon. I mean, it's possible. We certainly know that the regimes will figure out how to talk to each other. 
Um, it's quite possible that the US has more than one regime for a period of time within its own borders. Um, but what we're experiencing at the moment is it's possible to create a global carbon market where the value is captured in an instrument, a contract essentially, that has freedom to move to more than one market. We're already, you know, we've always planned for that because many of these investments were made before the markets had any sort of maturity. We didn't know how they're going to last. So because the market rewards physical reductions in greenhouse gases, that's your starting point. Where you go to collect that value depends on all sorts of other factors. At the moment, the most important place is Europe. But in the near term, it could well be Japan. Japan has got real problems meeting its obligations on the Kyoto Protocol, is already buying carbon. It may be that they offer a better price for the physical reductions of greenhouse gases. And, and you're absolutely right here, Tony, that we, the market can be very hard if you want it to be, but you've got to set aggressive targets. And a physical reduction of greenhouse gases in Beijing matters to us here because we have one atmosphere. It doesn't matter whether we take the ton of carbon out in Birmingham or Beijing. It matters to us collectively. And now I know Julia wants us to finish <laughs> so that we can have a pleasant conversation around the edge. And so over to you, Julia. Well, thank you very much. That was an astonishingly erudite debate. Um, there's a very lively trade in opinion, as you know, uh, that carries on throughout the uh, newspapers. And uh, uh, those of you who would like to know specifically what every single opinion is about carbon and carbon emissions and carbon trading can only do so with our help. And uh, I urge you to look at the various literature on your seats from ourselves and from Climate Change Capital and from Prospect. I'd like to particularly thank James for wearing two hats in this as a chair and as, a, as an advocate for everything that climate change stands for. I'd particularly like to thank not only Prospect again for supporting us, but the panel who, it has to be said, come here on an evening when they've had a busy day and most of them are exhausted from running between Blackpool and Bournemouth for little more, little more than the trade or the price of an editorial inten intelligence box of pencils. So can I ask you to uh, show your appreciation and thank you very much.